Doctors take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food, not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is a podcast from Minute Media. What's up, Panther fans? Welcome to another podcast of the four-man rush. Today we got myself, Will, Big Smooth, and we got special guests, former Panther guard, Mike Wall. Mike played his college years at Navy. He spent 11 seasons in the NFL and started 138 games. Mike blocked for Amon Green, former Green Bay Packers running back, who had five straight 1,000-yard seasons and gained a total of 1,883 yards in 2003. Mike spent his NFL years with the Green Bay Packers, Carolina Panthers, and Seattle Seahawks. He was a 2005. He made the Pro Bowl and All-Pro teams with the Carolina Panthers. Upon Mike's retirement, he went into finance for five years and earned his NBA. He was the first NFL skill development coach, and he was also a strength coach in the NFL. He founded Process to Perform, which is a total athlete development program, and he also once started a sport tech app. So we're pleased to have Mike join us for today's podcast, and we're going to join in progress with Mike talking about Process to Perform and what he's been up to since his retirement from the NFL. And we're not doing a great job of teaching teaching athletes that, that tool set. And really for me, it's mindset development, technical mastery, and ownership decisions. And so uh, when I got back out of the league, I, I decided to go my own way and start helping professionals down to preteens. I'm, I'm building up that tool set. I do that through that process to perform you were talking about, and it's my total athlete development platform. So I've been doing that for uh, the last couple of years, running that, running a podcast, process to perform podcast on player development for parents, players, and coaches. And then Amon Green and I, reunited and, and are doing an on my block podcast for the Packers. We'll be doing that through the, uh, through the entire postseason here. I expect them to go to the uh, Super Bowl. So there should be some, there should be some fun episodes on that. So you can check those podcasts out anywhere, uh, anywhere you get your stuff and just living the dream over here, man. I'm trying to raise kids. <laughs> well, it's uh, good to have you. And what I'll do is I'll share the process to uh, perform a website. So all of our uh, listeners can see, I know we have some, Guys who are high school football players may, you know, want to use your services. Sometimes a very good website, whether you're you know, a young football player or a fan that just wants to get a lot of uh, education on, I mean, not only offensive line play, but just, you know, general motivation and how to uh, hone in on your craft, whether it's football or any other aspects of life. So it's process to perform.com. He also has a podcast with a former Packers player, Amon Green as well. So be sure to check out uh, Mike's website as well. So let's get uh, started on some uh, NFL talk uh, now. I think what we're – as a Panthers podcast, I think we want to start with just talking about the current state of the organization and where we are right now. I know, Mike, on your website you have a video, a very good video, about organizational culture and the importance of having players be able to buy into that. I think that's right. relevant with the Panthers, with Matt Rule coming from a college program and trying to implement his culture in the Panthers organization had losing legends like Luke Keekley, Cam Newton, Greg Olson, Thomas Davis. Just talk about the importance of organizational culture and the challenges that a college coach like Rule had in trying to establish his culture in Carolina. Well, I think the first thing you have to notice is the names that you mentioned were prominent figures in that franchise. They're prominent figures in the NFL as far as the quality of player, the quality of human, quality of leadership that they had. And the best teams in the world are player-led. Are player right? We like to talk about you know, coaches – like to use that we're going to come in here and change the culture kind of catchphrase everywhere they go. But I would say there's probably only five or six teams that are culture by design instead of culture by default. That's a, a term I used, uh, picked up from a performance psychologist, Dr. Rick Perea. He says there's, there's, there's either culture by design or culture by default. And what that really simply means is I come in, I have a vision. I know how to communicate that vision with the members of my staff you know, transparent communication, congruent language across the uh, across the entire building. I have uh, I have standards of excellence that I maintain for my practices. I maintain from uh, from my meetings. I maintain on game day that are that are uh, consistent throughout the entire year. 
and I have consequences, and those consequences can be player led. They can be coach fines. You know, every every coach is different. But if you don't have those four things, you don't have a culture. And if you don't have a culture, you have nothing to lean back on when times are tough. You have nothing. You have no guiding light. And hopefully, if you put those systems in place, you are going to have a great group of veteran leadership in the, in the case of an NFL building, but people that are go through that for a year and understand this is the way forward. We're going to reinforce this. And you become that player led team, which the Panthers were quite frankly for years when, when, when Cam was there the first time around with Keekley and, and Thomas Davis, who I was lucky to play with. Those guys are, are natural born leaders. They they'll take on that responsibility uh, proudly. But when you're coming from a college, you know, the conversation is markedly different with a college athlete versus a professional athlete. And what a coach, whether it's Matt Rule, whether it's anybody, has to understand that if you want to get buy-in in a building, if you really want athletes to buy in, you need to show them that you are there to help them become the best versions of themselves. You have to be there to develop them. And if you're not there, if your number one priority is not to develop those athletes and it is not plain as day to those athletes that you're not there to develop them, you're not going to get the buy-in that you want because these athletes are brand aware. They understand the money that's being made now. They understand the business of football better than they ever have. There's just soundbite media. There's social media. There's all these ways that they have leverage outside of your team. So if you're not there to make sure that they are absolutely going to be the best versions of themselves so they can have the best career they wanted, that they dreamed of, then they can make the most money, take care of their family, whatever their motivation is. You have to be there to, to develop those athletes first and foremost. And if you're not, you are not going to get the, the, the results that you want. I'm interested. I'm glad you said um, develop the athletes because I think that's a big uh, part of Matt Rule's process. When he was at Temple, his uh, mentality was, okay, how am I going to compete with Penn State? How am I going to compete with Notre Dame? How am I going to compete with these Power 5 teams when I don't have access to the same quality of recruits they have? So his answer to that was, I'm going to ignore the recruiting ratings. I'm going to find athletes, and I'm going to the biggest, fastest, strongest guys I can find. I'm going to trust my coaching to develop them into men, develop them into great football players. And by their junior, senior year, I should have the biggest, fastest, strongest, longest team, high vertical jump guys that can go toe-to-toe with these bigger schools. I mean, in that process, worked very well at Temple mm-hmm. and Baylor. I mean, they beat. Um, Penn State for the first time in 70 years. Um, they've competed with guys like Notre Dame, teams like Notre Dame, uh, Baylor. He was going toe-to-toe with Oklahoma. Now, though that process and worked in college, do you think that type of process can work at the pro level? I absolutely do. And, and there's a lot of – I think the pushback that you'll get from a lot of staffs now and the excuse that they make is they don't have time, right? The time's being taken away from them. And for me, that's uh, that's all that is is an excuse to be average, to be mediocre, the the, I, the the most important hire, and to your you know to your point, if you're going to make them the biggest, fastest, strongest guys, the most important hire that you can probably have after the head coaching hire might be the strength and conditioning coach, because he deals with those people more often. He deals with every single player on that team more often than any other coach. All the movement patterns that you learn to play on the on the field of play, all the movement patterns are learned in the uh, in the strength and conditioning room or on the field of, of preparation. Every single thing that you need to learn about professionalism, being able to break down complex ideas like pad level into smaller bites that we can all kind of understand and improve on, resiliency, all of those things you learn in the strength and industry room. That's why a lot of really good uh, Alabama, you think about, you know, you think about Iowa with Chris Doyle before all that came about. He was the second in command. Kentucky, Florida, all these teams have strength and conditioning coaches that are very, very prominent in their in – their, uh, in the, in the organization because that really sets the backbone for the team. And I think in the NFL, what's hard is usually the strength and conditioning coach, the performance coach at this point is not as prominent a figure as it is, as it is in college. And that makes that, that whole transition difficult because the, the, um, the position coaches guys, they just don't have the bandwidth and it might be, they don't technically know how to coach some of these things from a movement pattern standpoint, and they might just be scheme guys that are really good at installing scheme and, and understanding how to watch tape. But you need all of it to become the best version of you. And you have to be able to allocate resources in the building um, across the, the entire spectrum of your coaching staff in order to get the most out of these athletes now. 
I know Smooth, you also said something similar about being skeptical of position coaches in the NFL. Do you want to add to that? And if possible, add another question if you have one from Mike. Um, my questions are going to be specific to the offensive line. Um, I'm a big Let's student. do it, man. That's what I do. I watch the line. So, quick question. You know, I I watched the game from Pop Warner up into the to the NFL. And what I noticed in the NFL is that execution is so much more important. So it might not look as pretty as you know they designed it to be when you start off in high school. But how important is just the small details of execution in the NFL? Uh, dude, I'm glad you brought that up, man, because it's everything. And the difference the difference between a third stringer and a first stringer really isn't talent in the NFL. It's really like the bandwidth and talent is like this, man. Like it's pretty narrow between, you know, the, the top 90% and the top 10%. It's pretty small bandwidth. The difference is the, the athletes that have that tool set. We talked about it before. Mindset development, technical mastery being the foundation of kind of everything we do. Yeah. And then and then ownership decisions. When you talk about technical mastery and you're talking about like when I coach when I coach my guys and we're talking in the terms of inches, when we talk about footwork, right, we're, ter- we're talking about aim small, miss small approach to targeting. And if you're not doing that and you're stepping underneath yourself, you're losing leverage on your first step. Like we can talk about mechanically why all of that, like we, you and I can sit here for hours and talk about mechanically why that's a problem. But just understand if you're allowing that to happen in your building, and honestly, 26, 27 teams in the league are allowing it to happen every single day. If you're allowing it to happen, you're never going to be that individual is never going to be the athlete or the, the football player that they could be. And therefore, your scheme is never going to be run as smooth as you want it to. We lose more games in the NFL because of poor technique than we ever did in, because of poor scheme. It's never been because of scheme. It's always because of execution. It's always because of the details. And one other question. Um, one, I was reading your website. One thing I agreed about is how to build a perfect offensive line. You know, your center, smartest guy in the room, your most physical imposing players are your guards, and you want to be able to leave your tackles on an island, right? Why is it Ideally. so difficult for us to build that in the NFL? Like, why is it so hard for a staff to just build that vision? Um, that's a great question. I I think, first of all, one of the big problems that you run into in in an NFL building is that you have, you have two people getting paychecks to do essentially the same job, which is evaluate talent. So you have a personnel group and then you have a coaching staff and they might not have the same idea. So you might be getting an athlete that you don't really want for, to run your system or you want in your building necessarily. That's a hard thing. Um, I, the, the, but the, the number one biggest problem in my experience now going kind of being in the, in the NFL for four or five years and, and on the other side of the coin, on the other side of the room in, in the coaches' meetings, is that we just don't spend a lot of time improving our technical mastery. And if you just think about it from an athletic standpoint, if you want to, you know, the, the, difference, the difference between athletes uh, on the field are their ability to make decisions and execute on decisions. So if, in order to be the best at that, you have to be able to automate your technique. Your technique has to be automatic and it, ha- and it has to be detailed and it has to be accurate. And if we can do those things, we can, have, we can find success. But it takes a long time to get good at something, right? This is one of those sports where you and I aren't walking down the street and breaking out in pass protection, right? We're not tackling. Like you got to buy a ticket to go do that stuff. So you can get markedly better than your um, – you can get markedly better than your competition over time if you put the requisite amount of work into it. But if you don't, if you just continue, if you're satisfied being average, if you're doing your walkthroughs at half speed instead of 50% speed with perfect accuracy, if you're not just being that pro and you're not demanding that out of your team as a position coach, as a coordinator, as a head coach, if you're not demanding in that way, you're just not going to find the success you want. Like you think about the Panthers, like, without getting too far in the weeds, man, it just starts with the way their, their stances. you got two guards that aren't very physical, and they're in two-point stances all the time. They're trying to run the ball. It's like, well, of course you're going to lose. You're, of course they're going to be playing on the wrong side of the scrimmage, right? It, it's just it's intuitive to anybody who watches it, but when you're in the thick of it, sometimes you don't think about that because you're worried about, hey, how are we going to game plan for the next team? Yeah, speaking about the Panthers, I know you made a post on Twitter that you mentioned that started with their stances. There were a lot of communication issues uh the scheme just wasn't fitting the players 
But you did say that you believe that all of these issues were correctable. Can you just kind of give our fans an initial thought on what your observations on the Panthers O-line? Yeah, and I'll be honest, guys. Like, I didn't, I don't follow the Panthers, you know, for every game in and game out. I watched two, three games, some cut-ups of, of the Tampa games, and then the game against the Saints. And, you know, a lot of that, I think there's some injuries, and there's some other things going on, obviously, with the offense. But, you know, when I look at I, – I look at everything and I just try to break all the complex ideas, blocking, tackling, all these all these things into simple movement patterns, right? And you start with, like, am I in a stance to be successful? I mean, am I in a, an athletic position? Am I in a, in a hip hinge position so I can maximize the use of my posterior chain? Like, that is a very simple idea that we're learning in the weight room every single day. Are you maximizing your opportunity to explode off the line, forwards, backwards, sideways in your stance? Is the answer yes or no? That like right there, that's a huge indicator of, of your success. Is your, your, is your initial footwork um, where it needs to be? Is it, it, is it as consistent and detailed as it should be? Because how you get to confrontation determines the terms of those, that confrontation, right? And so if I'm inconsistent in my footwork every single time, it's basically like me going out and learning a new skill every play. And you know, the game time is not time to learn a, new, uh, learn a new skill every damn play. So what we need to be able to do is get in a stance that puts us in a position to, to be a hip hinge athlete, to use initial footwork to put us in the right position pre-confrontation, and then just understand the rest of the game. Like Kent, you know, like um, uh, Christensen, right? Everyone's kind of excited. Is he going to be the guy? Is he not going to be the guy? When I look at him, he's a 25, 26-year-old rookie. Um, at that, at this point in his career, he, he is, his default state is straight up and down, right? So he's not one of those people that just likes to live in a hip hinge. If you looked at like, um, the, the two tackles from Tampa Bay, you look at, uh, you look at Trent Williams, you look at the really top guys in the league, you know, I'm talking about Tristan Wurst, obviously, uh, uh, Tampa, um, you look at those guys, they're hip hinge athletes. Like they're very comfortable for that six seconds of just maintaining that body position, a little bit chest forward. I'm not giving up my numbers. Those little details, sometimes you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to find success. And again, all of this stuff is correctable. You just have to shine a light on the problem, the areas of opportunity, and then you have to really be a dog about working for it. And that's why I think all these things, you have athletes that can play ball. Like every athlete wants to be successful, right? Like there's no athlete out there like, man, I really don't care how I do today. They all, they're all playing to look good for their parents or their, their loved ones. Like we, we all got our reasons. Some of them just don't know. It's unconscious incompetence. They don't know what they don't know. And if we don't shine a light on it, you're never going to get better. You know, so this is my team. I watched them weeks one through 17 or whatever. And I specifically watch the offensive line. So week to week, I can see the growth. I can see if somebody's improving. I can see if someone's regressing. One thing that you touched on is just first two steps out of the stance. We see a lot of false steps. We see poor angles from this team on a routine basis. So it's like I'm questioning the co the coaching staff more so than the player itself because I'm not a professional, but I can see these things. So right. how can the guys who get paid can't see them? You know what I mean? Like on a week-to-week -week basis, I see the same yeah. mistakes over and over and over again. I just look for growth, and I didn't see it this year. So if you're looking at a situation like that, are you looking at the coaching staff or are you looking at the, the player's will to get better? Like usually from your experience, what seems to be the problem? Well, listen, you're going to have athletes that are um, – you're going to have athletes even at the professional level that are like the, the end game is being the football player. And then you're going to have other guys at the end game is we're doing it for money, we're doing it for, for Twitter followers. Like they have kind of another reason, and football is the vehicle to get where they want to go. You want to have as many guys as you can where the football is the end game. So there is – there's always part of that. But, you know, as you're watching film – and you're talking about let's just talk about offensive line playing and being well coached. When you when you think of a well coached football team, I just look at two things. Like I have a litmus test that's very easy for me to uh, to, to determine whether or not they're a well coached team. Are they good on double teams and can they pass off games? It's, I mean, it's that easy. If if you can if you're good on your doubles and you pass off games, you're probably a, a well coached team, right? Because that means there's some detail and some time that's been taken to do that. And if, and if you just can't do the, what are really at this stage with six-man boxes, all, like all the advantages we have to run the ball now, if you can't do that, then you're probably not being coached at the level you need to. And, and, and Big Smooth, I'll tell you a story, man, that'll kind of sum this up for me because this is what happens in buildings. When I was coaching tight ends uh, in Miami my first year, 
I remember we had a four or five minute individual period. And we had, we were asking our tight ends to like pass block, like 15 plays or 15 snaps a game at that point. Okay. So we had, a and we had got Jordan Cameron. We had guys that were not blockers. Right. And we would spend of the four or five minutes, we would spend the first three minutes running like fades for the quarterback. And then we would have to run over to the fence, grab our bag, I'd have, you have everything planned out so they could get one rep or two reps before the whistle blew for the next thing. And so what my point of that is the onus of becoming technically sound, of becoming kind of the best version of yourself technically, becoming a master of your craft, the onus oftentimes now is on the athlete or they have to do it outside of practice hours because the coordinators are interested in how are we going to run this scheme, how are we going to beat these safeties, we got, a, we got 40 reps a team we're going to get through in a limited amount of time, and they're worried about that part of the game instead of worrying about, hey, if we are the best at the basics of this sport, we are going to be at minimum a 500 football team. 500 football team just being the best of the basics, just understanding how to move on the field and watch tape. If you can do those two things really well, if you watch tape like a master poker player and be the best of the basics on the field, you're a 500 team every single year, and then it just depends on – all the other stuff that goes into being a good football team. I know one thing with the Panthers offensive line, Matt rules big on position flexibility. He wants guys that can play guard tackle, guard center, uh, both sides of the line. And I think that I, I see why you only get 48 roster spots. So it's good to have guys that can play multiple positions. But I think the Panthers set an NFL record in offensive line combinations this year. Part of it was due to injury. Part of it was mm -hmm. just moving guys around and trying the right fit. You kind of talk about the struggles of um, lack of not having that continuity, one, and two, yeah. on the individual player having to learn multiple positions. Yeah, it's tough. And, and the other tough part about that is it's not like uh, David Bakhtiari is coming back on your team, like the Green Bay Packers' great left tackle. It's like when well, he shows up, like continuity is there because he's so good. He can communicate. He's the best at every single block that they have, right? And you're right now just trying to figure out, like literally, except for your right tackle, you're probably trying to figure out like who are these four guys, my four guys in these other positions. And so none of them are at that level where they're going to just be step in and be in complete command. And now you're like kind of stacking them next to one another. That's very, very difficult. When you when you talk about offensive line continuity, it really comes down to a feel for how that person steps and how they play on their double teams that we talked about before, passing off games. And then it and then the other thing is is communication and you know, if your inside guys aren't like a bunch of chattering monkeys on the line of scrimmage, like just making sure that everybody's dialed into what you're doing, you ha you're going to have these reasons to 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 find failure. You're going to have these reasons not to pick up linebacker dogs. Like there's, it's just a really really important part of the game that if you're seeing something new for the first time from a different perspective because you're switching positions, you got somebody next to you that's different. It's a really hard thing to pick up and learn. And again. These are things where you just really have to, if you're not a natural at like talking, you really have to be able to stress that in your meeting rooms and on the field and your walkthroughs, like all these opportunities for communication are there. You just, again, it's about shining the light on those, on those really critical factors of success as a coaching staff or as mentor, as older players that are mentors, but really shine a light on it so you can get those, those, those things done. Uh, smooth. I know you've also had some um, observations on that throughout the year as well. Did you want to add on to that or move on? Um, yeah, you touched on just two basic things, being able to, to double team properly and communicate. And that's another issue that I saw. A lot of times with the Panthers offensive line, we struggled to establish dominance on the second level just mm -hmm. because that initial double team didn't work properly. You know, yeah. guys don't know when to let go. And, like, you know, you, you combo block into the second level. There was just no continuity. So I get that. It's because we had such a crazy rotation. I use just the our left guard, Michael Jordan, for a minute. One week he has Cam Irvin to his left side and Pat and uh Pat Elflane to his right side. Another mm -hmm. week it could be Paradise and another guy. So just the left guard alone never had an opportunity just to grow with his teammates. So I get it. Those two things you touched on are paramount. And I just think that had a lot to do with our struggles this season in the trenches. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and when you know, like when you think about um you can use the left guard, that's a position I played. You know, if 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 that individual has 
really, really good foot, initial footwork, initial, uh, initial, um, you know, hip height, chest height. And he's going into contact in a consistent manner, regardless if he's like doing the ace chip with the center or he's over there doing the deuce of the back or the backside B blocks with the tackles. Like he has the foundational parts of that down pat. Then those transitions are pretty easy. But if he's still kind of trying to figure out his stuff, and then on top of it, he's meshing with his other guys that are trying to figure out their stuff, it is really difficult. And so I think that's why like, you can really appreciate, um, you know, one of the other teams I played for, Green Bay, they've had across the entire line, they've only had one guy that's been in there the entire year. They've had four new starters, and, and they just – granted, they've got Aaron Rodgers. Like, things are a little bit different. But those guys are just super well coached. All the footwork's the same. They create their offense out of um, out of concepts. So, like, you're running your inside zone, and your inside zone blocking is always the same. And then your inside zone turns into your play action. It turns into your keep pass. It turns into your flick pass to the dive. It turns into your jet sweep, right? And so every single rep of all those different plays, they get to do the exact same footwork. And so you get all of these extra unknown, unseen reps at doing things the right way over and over and over with different kinds of consequences during the week and then during games. And that's how you can really build up like the strengths of every individual member of that offensive line. So everything looks like it's a little, there's a little more continuity between those players. Uh, one thing I really liked about your article about offensive line is how you got guys like Quentin Nelson, you know, big physical presence, nastiness, like smooth likes to say, you know, if you dominate up front, but it's kind of evolved to, you know, they're looking for more basketball players, athletes, yeah. Guys, to can you talk about why that's been the case more so in recent years and the drawback of it? Yeah, I mean, what happened honestly with with the NFL is is fantasy football. I mean, if you if you want to go back to like what started this whole revolution of of offensive minded football and changing all the rules and everything, it's the fantasy football man, sports betting, all of that became a big deal, and that was a way for an average, you know, the the the. The, a new generation or, or new wave of fans to come in and enjoy the game. And so the, the rules change to favor offenses. We, we can talk about targeting or, you know, quarterback in the pocket, all these different things change to fundamentally help the, the offense score more points, get more yards. And because, and then we started bringing all of these different systems that were quick strike from college, from high school, a lot of the innovation that, you know, you see at the NFL levels you know, first from high school or for college all these college guys are coming up. I mean, you think about 10, 15 years ago, you didn't know the name of coordinators, right? You know the name of all the offensive coordinators now, right? Because it, it's all about their scheme. It's all about their system. It's all about how, how they can take any player and just make it work. And what happened was that offensive linemen were basically told, like, all right, we're, we're sliding left, we're sliding right, it's three-step drop, get rid of the ball quick. Like, all of it became so simple that we stopped really celebrating the physical violence, the downhill, the mentality – of the game, the, the the game switched from in the box. You think about we used to run against eight man boxes, man. You never see an eight man box anymore. You rarely see a seven man box. It's usually a five or a six man box, and you'd be averaging. I mean, back in the day, if you would have told AG Amon that he was getting a six man box all day, it was like eight yards a carry, guaranteed. But it's just the the game has changed, and so all they really wanted was these guys that could pass pro, that could get out on the on the on the quick screens, and they're just looking for a different type of athlete and that athlete has a different mentality than I think some of the old school guys did. And like I said before, though, the pendulum swinging back, you see a lot of dominance now on the interior defensive lines. And once that, because that has been established again, guys like Aaron Donald kind of jumping off the charts. Once that's established again in the, in the way that the pocket has, you know, with, with shotgun formations, the pocket changes, the geometry of the field changes, right? So we don't have this like traditional cup anymore. It's like more like a, a smiley face is just kind of like kind of happy, right? And they're all just kind of given ground. So sets have changed. All this stuff has changed. And, and because of that, we're going to get more, we're going to get more, what we just call, you know, physically dominant guards and centers and tackles that are just really about that life because now they're popping off the screen. The other thing I, I want to mention too is John Madden is the guy that used to celebrate offensive linemen. And when he stopped, when he stopped commentating, like nobody really – you know, grabbed the torch and ran with it for offensive line for a while. And you see guys now talking about because of guys like Quentin Nelson, because of the Cleveland Browns offensive line, like we're celebrating how dominant they are. And I think it's, I mean, for guys like me, that's awesome. You know, I'm, I agree with you. That's an exciting time that we're in because we're getting back to the dominant part of football. 
I don't want to call it soft, but it's just like we don't get like if I'm th- if I'm putting myself as an offensive lineman, just putting myself in their shoes. The opportunities just to be aggressive and dominate are rare now. It's a lot of pass sets going on. Guys can't develop confidence or momentum just to be able to run the ball routinely. I know we certainly didn't do that, no matter how much Matt Rule said that we would. I just found that there were rare opportunities mm-hmm. for us to just be aggressive and run the ball down the defense's throat. So I agree with you 100%. Quentin Nelson, I'm a huge fan of. He's nasty. Uh, I think my favorite interior offensive lineman right now is Frank Ragnow from Detroit. Big yeah, fan of great. him because he's really nasty and aggressive. And more importantly, just technically sound. He's been like that since his days at Arkansas. That's what I noticed about him. He's just a technician on the football field. But I'm glad you said that, that we have an opportunity to get back to what I think trench play is all about, you know, just being physically imposing. It's been years since I've seen it, but you're right. I look at that Cleveland Browns offensive line. They get, they, they're probably the happiest offensive line in the league because week in, week out, they, go, they get to go out and just be aggressive in the run game. One of the best running teams in the league. So I agree with you. Yeah, and they're scheme friendly, right? And and that's what – if you're dropping back – I, so I work with some pro guys, right? And I remember a couple of years ago, one of them was dropping – it felt like they were dropping back like 70 times a game. And it was like it was literally like depressing because what do you have to look forward to? In the, in, the, in the past game, you could have a great game and lose one and look like a fool, right? To the media, to some of your teammates that don't know what's going on. But when you get to impose your physical will going downhill, when you're keeping the defensive line guessing on whether or not you're going to come off and smack them in the face or they can come off and pass rush you, like the game becomes more fun. You take more pride in that part of it. And it really just becomes more fulfilling, I think, for an offensive lineman. Uh, There's just so much people talk about, well, the fastest way to get to the end zone is, is throw the ball. Yeah, there's also a lot of ancillary things that happen as a consequence of running the ball, right? Like you get you get to control the clock, you get to keep the other Tom Brady off the off the field. You get to impose your will. You get to, you are dictating the terms of confrontation, playing and play out, and that in itself is a worthwhile endeavor for the entirety of your team. And I think we just forgot about that again because of you know, all the all the things we've just prior discussed. I mentioned John Madden in the '90s. I used to always emphasize offensive linemen but outside of that let's talk from the casual football fans perspective they never really had a person like Madden since then to continuously educate them on the offensive line so now you see the emergence of advanced (laughs) analytics I know you're not a fan of the PFFs and these different advanced metrics they use to try to evaluate offensive linemen that speak to the common fan can you talk about the weaknesses of these trying to use these metrics to evaluate O-linemen yeah, just very simply, man, there's no contextual intelligence whatsoever, meaning that the situation dictates a certain, whether it's a certain uh, uh, technique, whether it's a certain scheme, uh, they, there's no contextual intelligence. It's just it's just me churning out the outcome of that of that play and me telling you whether or not it worked or not. Um, the people that a lot of people that are that are putting those metrics together, especially the ones that are, are somewhat subjective, like pass rush win weight, win rate or you know, running win rate or, you know, value over replacement, all of those things are subjective measures and we're not measuring a process. We're just basing something on an outcome. And it's just because of that, it's very, very difficult for, I think guys that are playing the position and their well being kind of rests on whether or not they're successful or not to get rated by a third party. who Just again, has no, I just, for lack of a better term, I call it contextual intelligence, right? Like, like for example, you know, uh, let's say you play in the NFC. Let's say you're part of the Packers team and you're part of the NFC North, right? Their their division is terrible, and they don't have a lot of good interior defensive linemen. And so, you know, a, a guard could look a certain way there, but that doesn't mean that he's better than like somebody that's playing in the AFC East. Like that's it's, it's not that's not true. It just means that he's playing against poor competition. But they don't really take that stuff into context. They don't take in who your quarterback is, where he lines up, if they bootleg a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of things that go into whether or not you're playing well. And that's why when I break down tape, when I look at when I look at individuals, when I help guys improve, I'm always breaking down the process of what they're supposed to be doing, not basing things on the outcome. Because if you do outcome based grading, man, you're always reactionary. You're never going to get better. Uh, smooth. I know we trying to kind of do our own grading system and offensive linemen because we're not really a fan of the PFF and those analytics either. Can you kind of look 
talk about what you look for when you're trying to grade offensive linemen on the outside looking in? Well, like you said, it's difficult because I'm not in the room with those guys, so I don't know exactly what their what their objective is on the on each play. But I just try to use my own uh, my own football IQ to get an idea of what they're supposed to do, and I go off of that. I use some discretion. Whether mm-hmm. the play like from grade one guy, his grade is going to be different if the if the play isn't towards his direction as far as the point of attack versus another guy. But then sometimes you can pick up on things like you know a certain play won't be successful unless you complete this task. And if I look at certain things like screens and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I can identify how important a guy's role is in that play. And I just I view his performance based on that. Did he take the right did he take the right angles? Did he sell the play well enough? And you just gotta go off of that. So it's gonna it's never from us looking on the outside, we're never gonna have a perfect grading system. Mm-hmm. It is subjective, it is my opinion. But mm-hmm. I just try to use everything that I've learned over the years just to try to put the most accurate grade together. Just to give an idea of how well a guy is playing, and I get to focus just on one team, so I don't have to, you know, That's true. compare compare players all over the league. I'm focused on one team and what they have to do each each week and each week out. So it's a little bit easier for me, but again, it's always going to be subjective. I agree with you from that from that standpoint. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's a really it's a tough ask, right? So it's 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 tough for the grader, and it's tough for the guy that's receiving the grade. Uh, you know the way I've always I, I've looked at it because I've, I've kind of been on, I've been on both sides and and again if you break down um, let's just say it's outside zone let's say it's outside zone to the right you're the left guard so you're the backside backside outside zone right so you have a cutoff block and it could be a B could be an A could be a cut could be a high could be a low but what are the factors in that play that that matter over the long term well. You talked about you start with their stance, right? Then this, the, the most important thing on that play is going to be, did I gain leverage with my first step or not? Right? And we can talk about in terms of inches, if we're talking with an individual player, it's like a, you, you, know, you and me one-on-one, but just very, very basic. Did that athlete gain leverage on his opponent or did he lose leverage? Okay? Then you can look at, was our, our his, is his chest low to the face in the ground or is he standing straight up? In other words, is his, is, how, is his, how is his bend? Then you can figure out, is his head across? Is his landmark where it, sh- where it should be given, given the requirements of the play? Like, you just go through those three things. We haven't talked about hands or, like, his ability to like, unlock his hips and finish. But you just talk those three things. You're probably going to – you could probably guess the, the outcome of that person's part of that play – 99% of the time correctly if you just knew those three things. So, you, you know what I mean? It, 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 becomes a, it becomes a practice in process as opposed to you beat me across my face, I kept driving, the, the running back cut, cut back on, on you, and it looks like I did a good job when in reality I did a bad job. You see what I mean? That's what's kind of tough about looking at the like, outcome-based grading, I think. Uh, switching gears, I know offensive line is going to be a hot topic for the Panthers as we approach the NFL drafts. So I want to talk about kind of the what to look for when evaluating offensive linemen. In your article, you said it's 80% cognitive, emotional makeup, 20% tangibles. Can you kind of yeah. elaborate on that for our fans on what um, what you look for in that regard? Ray, big smooth. Let me ask you this. How, how much tape do you think you have to watch to get a good idea of how somebody moves? Uh, one game. Okay, so so for me, if you talk, if you can talk, so you got to think about from a from a, a NFL standpoint, right? I have resources, right? I can talk to anybody. So if it's a draft guy or it's a guy from another team, I can probably go talk to their strength coach. So I'm going to have a really good idea of how they move. Okay, and I'm going to and I can that's going to tell me a lot about like how they act in the weight room. How, with the gains, they, not how strong they are, but like what gains have they made since they've been there? Do they work? Do they have like things they work on that are ancillary, like their mobility, like their balance, core strength? You're going to gain a lot of information from that guy. And then, like for me, I can watch a series of a player, and just because I've been doing it for so long, it's like, and you know, like you get intimately aware with this stuff, right? But I, when you when you play the position, but because I know like the movements I want to look for. I don't think you need to watch, but like 
I don't know, a couple, a series, a couple series. Because all I really want to know is, is he in a stance to be successful? Like, is he able to get in a stance? Does he does he gain leverage on his footwork, or does he always step underneath himself? Like, is he comfortable being in that hip hinge position? Or is, it, is his default state to stand straight up and down? Like, once you just answer a couple questions like that, like I'll just cut the herd, right? Because if I if I have a guy that physically I'm going to really have to work to get at the right height, for example, you got to ask yourself: Is do I have the time to to fix that? What is a really big problem before I get fired? So we, I'll give you an example. We had this dude that was in, uh, in Miami, and he was a great kid. But he had, like, locked ankles, meaning, like, his, his, he had no ankle mobility whatsoever. So if you're a lineman and you don't have ankle mobility, that's why you see all those linemen with, like, one foot's like this, and then their back foot's, like, way out sticking towards the sideline. It's because, like, at one point there was, like, a big dude who didn't have any ankle mobility. So then, like, line coaches were like, oh, no, we, we'll call that a kickstand, but – Dude, that opens up your hips. Like, there's all these problems that come with that, like, just from a movement pattern standpoint. So they asked me, this guy, and I love the kid, but I was like, look, it's going to take probably two years to fix your ankles. And he worked on it every single day, and he's still in the league, but it's really tough as a project when you see that kind of deficiency. Um, that, and you can kind of figure that out, again, by just asking a strength coach or just watching a series of film. Then it's all about – after that, like once they, you cut that herd, it's all about, man, does this guy need football? Like, does he need it? Because I want guys who need football. Like, they need this in their lives. They want to they spend the time to be the best version of themselves. Like, this, they were dreaming about doing this when they were in third grade. Like, I want those guys. I want as many of those guys I can get because when it comes down to it, they're going to put in the work that it takes to be, to be great. Now, on the 20%. Uh, tangibles. I know there's a lot of coaches in the league that are big on measurables. I want my tackle to have 34-inch arms. I want my <laughs> tackle to have this broad jump. I want long tackles, guards with you know barrel chests. You know, sure. What do you think about these um, measurables? Like, how? Well, I guess what do you think? How important do you think arm length is for the success of an offensive tackle? With how evaluators emphasize it so much. Not nearly as important as, as how their feet are. Like, it's not even – I don't even know why it's even – listen, you want to have the best athlete. It would be stupid to think that you, you don't want the best athletes you can get, right? And I'm, I'm sure there's some things that are more important than others. But, like, when I when I hear people talking about, like, arm length, I'm always like – I just – I honestly don't get it because the way that you should be playing – any good defensive line coach tells you what? Big move, you know this, right? Like, anybody, anybody tells you this. I want to smell their breath before I make the move. Because I want to attack elbows and armpits, dude. And so I should never be in here anyways. Like, I should be locked out all the time, whether I whether I have 34-inch arms or 30-inch arms. Or like, I should always be locked out to give myself that recovery time. But what really matters is what kind of body position I'm in. Am I giving up my bull rush all the time? Do I have my feet underneath me? Can I recover? Like, that. that's what matters. So those tangibles are a good indicator like there's certain things that are a good indicator, your 10 yard sh- or your, your, your 20 yard shell or like your first 10 yards of your, like I've never seen, you know, they say that like 40 yard rut, uh, dash doesn't matter with linemen. It might not be the most important thing, but I've never seen a dude that's really fast be a bad lineman ever. I've never seen a guy that can run like a four nine suck. I've never seen that. I've seen a dude that can run a five nine suck, but I've never seen a dude to run a four nine, not be a good player. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, I don't even know what we're talking about sometimes with these measurables. But do I want a fast guy? Yeah, of course. But it's probably because it speaks to the amount of work that that person's done in the weight room, which is a character that I want. Like, I want the guy that's put in that work. And, and so it's it's always kind of like, – some of these things are always interesting to me, right, because I, I don't understand what we're looking at. Well, what I notice in today's game, if I'm a tackle, right, I'm yep. usually facing a very athletic edge rusher that's trying to beat me to a spot. So when I – question about the importance of arm lift honestly i value the feet way more than anything so totally if i can get to that spot in a timely manner to put myself in the position to to combat this speed rush that's what's most important to me i don't really understand the arm rest the arm the arm lift because it's like the game has changed like if you get caught with your arms extended grabbing they're gonna call holding so how important really is arm lift at, at the left tackle position the right tackle position today to me, I think it's more so about feet, technique, and like you said, the ability to get in that position where you feel 
confident to do anything required of you. So, yeah. as four man rush, you can probably understand our our, our frustration when we listen <laughs> to our head coach talk about why he passed up on certain players. Oh, better. Dude, Slater was the man in that draft too. Wasn't he? A lot better, but it's very yeah. it's very very frustrating. It kind of because I'm a diehard fan, it takes my love away a little bit because it's like, gosh, like why? How do you miss this type of talent because his arms weren't long enough? I've seen yeah, guys with shorter one. arms play that position all the time and dominate, make all pro every year. So I just don't understand the emphasis on the measurables. So it's it, you know what's interesting too is like because of like we talked about the geometry of the cup now or geometry of the pocket, it's changed, right? Like it's it's not like this anymore. Because that quarterback's not under center taking a five-step drop every time, right? So the quarterback's at shotgun taking a three- to five-step drop. And so he's not seven yards deep, dude. He's like 11 yards deep, eight yards deep, nine yards, right? And so the pocket's like this. And so back in the day with the long arms, the thought process was, like, if you're on my – if you, if we're chest to chest and you turn me, then my radius is very tight, right? So you're going to be able to get around my corner. But if I have my arm extended – it's just like you know, if I was if I was um, if I was the center of a circle and I put a pencil out, like obviously if I drew a circle like this, that the radius of that circle is much longer. It's the same idea. That, so that makes sense. But to your point, the game is about getting to your real estate spot under control before that guy does, right? And keeping him off rhythm, and he's trying to keep you off rhythm. That's the game. That's all it is. And if you can do that, then all this other stuff, especially now, as we can like kick back and now settle because the, the quarterback's foot is planted at 11 yards. Like the geometry is different, man. They're not trying to run this circle on you and then you can like push them by. Like that's not the name of the game anymore. The name of the game is I want to default this guy to make me bull rush. And then I want to have the strength and, and, and balance to be able to lock him out so that he can't, he can't push me into this pocket, which admittedly is now like shifted back another two, three yards. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. That that was a tough statement to hear because uh, when I was watching last year, I haven't paid too much attention to the draft because Panay Sewell and, and Slater were coming out. I, you know, I, I did some, some, some workup stuff on them and, and man, Slater was like last year, he, you know, you can go back and check, check the tape. Like I, I thought he was the man and he, and he turned out to be the guy, man. He's a really, really good player. I know the guy you played next to in Carolina, Jordan Gross, I think his arms were like 33 and a quarter. So what do you think he was able to – what made him so special to be able to overcome – You talking about Jordan? <laughs> you talking about Jordan? Oh, yeah, Jordan Gross because, yeah, I think his yeah, arms – Yeah, yeah, so, so, so Jordan's hips – like Jordan's first round pick out of Utah, right? He had um, – because he wasn't that strong upper body-wise. Like he's not one of those barrel-chested guys that you're talking about. But he was a supreme athlete. He had incredible hip strength and explosiveness, and he and he was very, very he was comfortable being uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. He was very comfortable, kind of living in that hip hinge world. And so he could explode when he punches. Guys don't think about this a lot, but like when you're in your pass pro, and you you know a lot of guys kind of stay in this position, and then they just they're punching straight out right with their chest, and they're just like all only chest that's that's activated when they punch. Whereas, like, you see good players, they're punching a little bit with their glutes, right? They punch, we just call it, like, punch with your hips or lead with your lats. And you get to use your body into that, that you go from that hip pinch position, just a little bit of a shake where you get more power and explosive about it. And that's what guys like Jordan could do. So he might not be, like, a 500-pound bench press guy, but he could unload on a guy because his hips were so powerful, and he learned how to use his hips when he was punching. You guys had a really good line there for a while. And the other thing is, too, with the Panthers, it's been tough, right, is, like, when Cam Newton was there, life is a little bit different when you've got a, a, an absolute unit in the backfield that can throw it 80 yards. He runs a 4-5. Like, he was, an, he was the man, like, for a long time. And so that whole scheme and that system that they're running, you know, it like, you had remember when Andrew Norrell was there? Like, that guy was a stud, right? And he was killing everybody. And it's not like he's falling off in Jacksonville, but you don't hear about his production as much because they don't have a good team and they don't have a good guy in the backfield. They don't have a good running game. Like it's a lot of this stuff is always a consequence of some of the, you know, the skill position weapons that you have and their abilities. Cause now you can call certain plays. They're going to, they're going to get you in and out of certain things that may or may not be to your favor. And 
it, it's still an ultimate team game. That's what we love about it. But we just want to see like more consistency at the individual level, I think, right? Right. I think that kind of that 2015, 2016, 2017 Panthers O-line was kind of your ideal makeup. You had your center, Ryan Khalil, very intelligent player, um, um, guided everybody in the right spot, very good communicator. You had two nasty physical guys, Trey Turner. Andrew Trey Morgan. Turner was – I forgot about him. He was great, man. Yeah. He, I mean, he's the same same story, right? Right. <laughs> and I know, uh, Smooth, you were a big fan of Norwell as well, weren't you? You can talk about yeah, I was a huge fan of Norwell because I think it, he touched on what Mike was talking about earlier. The difference in talent between first string and third string, it's about that want to. So he was an undrafted guy and became an all-pro. And it just was because his desire to get better to me. And when I watched that, I used to watch the tape back then. I used to see he'd have false steps early in the season. You start seeing his feet getting better, him taking better angles. I think that he was more of a... He was more detailed in his craft, you know, just to get better every week. That's why you saw success. I wish some of the guys on the roster were like that today. We just don't have it. But then you just got to be nasty. Like, <laughs> physically imposing, you have to have that attitude to want to dominate the person in front of you. And he had that. It's very, very hard to find with these younger guys, man. Very hard to find, to be honest. You ever notice that when you watch tape now that, like, remember how Norwell is a great example. Remember how Norwell would – like if it was a slide to the left, he would like help that he check that that shade on the center. And then dude, he was he was going downhill on that defensive end. Like that defensive end was never gonna come into the B gap again, right? He would end him. And so you think about what that does for that tackle now that hey, this guy's really only got, you know, uh, he can come down the middle, he can go outside, because if he goes inside, he knows he's gonna get laid out. Like, do you have any idea what that does to the cards of that tackle? And you just don't see that anymore. You don't see you just don't consistently see guys like, like taking shots on people like they used to. Just like that part of the game is gone. That's kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? And that's why like guys like Norwell, even if he just did that, like even if he was an average guy but just did that, like what you what you add, the value you add to the offensive line just by just by doing that simple task that takes no talent, just takes a lot of want to and a little bit of pain. If you just add that to your that dimension to your line, you are, you know, a multiplier effect better than you were yesterday. Uh, Smooth, you have any more questions before we get to some of these fan questions? No, we can jump to the fan questions. I Man, I can sit here all day with Mike and just talk football. I don't get to do that a lot, so okay, let's jump to the fan questions. Okay, this first question is from Bill Spears. Thank you for listening today. Uh, Bill asked, can coaching motivation overcome natural ability and talent? Uh, to a certain extent, the way, the way that I explain, um, the way I explain this to, to athletes is I think at every level of sport, you have to be, you know, you go to the amusement park, you got to be a certain ride, you know, height to ride the ride. You go to Disneyland, you got to be like 42 inches to ride the ride or whatever. For me, it's the same thing in, in the league. Like there's, there's kind of, there's kind of physical measurements that you like a five foot three 150 pound guy is not playing offensive line in the nfl it's just not going to happen but is if you are tall enough to ride the ride lack of a better term i think that if you become a master of your craft right so you have you know, you, you have your foundational technique foundational knowledge you have your routines and your habits you understand the, the intimacy of the scheme you know how to study your opponent when you, you understand how to transition from practice field to game day, like once you have all of that stuff, like, and that a lot of that is just having a really good coach, a really good mentor, like somebody to help you along the way, you can become a really good player in this league, despite not being the most physically gifted. So I, 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 the short answer is yes. Okay. Next question from John Barrera says, can this man be our yeah. O-line coach? <laughs> just on this, on this program right here. That's it. <laughs> See what else? We already asked the armlet question. We got a lot of these. So it's something we've already covered. I bet, that was a hot topic this week, I bet, huh? That was that was, was nuts, man. Let's see. Okay, from Ian, he says, How important is having a nasty attitude in your evaluation process? Would you take a less athletic guy as looking to be a tone setter over the athletic guy that isn't? It probably depends on the position. Um, and it probably depends on the makeup of your line currently. Uh, at, at some point, you know, here's here's what happens with uh, here's what happens in, in an NFL building, right? You have a guy at the top 
who may or may not have played. He's a quote unquote talent evaluator. And he'll come in and he'll say something like, these guys are unmolded clay. Like we're talking about 21, 22 year old grown men, right? Some of them have families. They're all trying to make a living. These guys are unmolded clay and it's our job to make them what, what we want. And the truth is, if you have a guy that's not a physical guy, that's not a nasty guy, he's probably not ever going to be a nasty guy. He's just going to, he's, he's going to be, if he wants to be the best version of himself, he's going to go be that, but he's probably not going to be that enforcer on your team. Right. And, and so that's a misnomer. And that's what happens a lot. I mean, we've, I've had people say that to me and it's almost like, you don't want to laugh in anybody's face, but it's like, this is, that's a joke. So what I would say is, as long as the as long as the talent disparity isn't that great, I'm always going to go with the guy who's willing to do anything. Does that make sense? Okay, this next question is from uh, Xavier Tufty. He says, "Mike, thanks for taking the time for this. From a coaching perspective, can you talk a little about the, a little bit about the level of attention to detail and preparation that differentiates success in the NFL versus college?" Well, I can tell you from my perspective, so there's there's kind of two ways to look at everything. There's there's from the, the coach's perspective and then the player's perspective. Because from a from a coach's perspective, I think when you you know talk about a, what do they run on third and long, what do they run in short yardage, what personnel do they bring in to match this personnel group? There's a lot of those questions. And I think a lot of that is very similar um, from the NFL and college. What different what was different for me individually was one, you really have to be a master technician to be a top-level player in the NFL, and, and the faster you learn that, and you're going to have to find, you're going to have to be able to carve out time on your own, pre and post practice, weight room stuff, mobility stuff. You have to have a routine and a process for yourself that's going to make you the best version of you. But just from a maybe from a game film or a prep standpoint, we get all of the tape and we get the scheme and the system from the coaches and during the course of the meetings during the week. But from an individual prep standpoint, like I want to know how to beat you. And the way that I know how to beat you is I watch you. I know your tendencies. I know your tells. I know your, your moves. I know what you can and can't do. And that level of preparation, I didn't have that in college. I don't think a lot of people have that in college. But that's what becomes crucial because ultimately at any position in confrontational sports, your ability to win your 1v1 matchup is really what makes you valuable or not valuable in the game, right? Like – Mike, when I had a coach in, in Green Bay, our coach just tells me, well, you're two bad pass sets away from the bus stop. So it don't matter if we win the game or lose the game. You give up two sacks a game, you're not going to be there very long. Either. So that, that's, I think, the level of prep, the individual level changes a, a lot. Hey, Mike, from, from just to touch on your point real quick. Did you watch the national championship? The Georgia game? I watched about half of it, yeah. So um, my favorite offensive lineman was Jamari Salyer coming into the college football season. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because something that you touched on. In the offseason, all in the summertime, I saw him working with Willie Anderson on his own. So in my head, that told me, you know what? He's doing something that most of his teammates aren't doing. He's yeah. going to be a good football player this year. Just using your own personal time to get better at your craft, especially with someone like you, like if I can learn from you or someone that's done it before, that's going to kind of separate me from the competition. So when I saw him doing that, I'm like, yo, He's going to have a good football season. That's exactly what he did. Dude, it, it's, you're so right, man. Like, you always think about it this way. Um, and it's, it's difficult because a lot, of, um, a lot of buildings, whether it's college or pro or whatever, like they have, well, dude, I, I'm coaching you or I'm your strength coach or, I, dude, you have to go find, like you have to be a little bit selfish with your time, right? If, if I can go talk to you and you're going to make me better, I'm going to go find a way to talk to you. And what I don't understand and what I try to tell athletes is like, how are you supposed to be better than everybody else? Better than everybody else if you're doing the same thing everyone else is doing, right? We can't be like, we're not all special, right? So if you're doing this, if you're doing kind of what we'll just call the bare minimum requirements over here and I'm doing the same thing, but I just think I'm doing that a little bit better. So I'm going to do That's not how you get better. You get better by uncovering the rock and seeing what's underneath it. You, you get better by going – if you got to fly across the country to learn from a new line coach or or go learn a new a method of training in the offseason and learn how to watch tape better, like you find people that are going to expand your your world and you go listen to them. And it might not be for four months, six months. It might be for a week. But the more you learn, the more you can – you know, the goal for every athlete should be to own their process and own their career, Right. 
And you can't do that if you're limited to the things that you only find in that one building, that one high school, that one college, that one professional building. Like that's not good enough. There's too much information out there. You have to be able to go out there and try to understand like what works for me, what makes sense for me. And you have to un- you have to uncover all that stuff in order in order to know. Otherwise, you just you kind of walking around with with somebody else's ideas. I do the same thing, man. Just trying to get better at this content creating. I'm gonna start following your work more. I follow guys like Big uh, Big Duke and Willie Anderson. I want to see things as, from as many perspectives as possible, so I can become better at what I do. I think players probably need to do the same thing, especially if they play for the Panthers. <laughs> we have a question from T. Thompson. Do you think Deontay Brown was too overweight, and what do you think about him moving from his natural position of right guard to center? He's referring to a Panthers guard. Deontay Brown was a rookie this year. I think he got from 360 down to 330. He didn't get a lot of playing time this year, and they're going to think about changing him from guard to center. You think 360 or is too heavy for a guard number one? And what are the challenges of playing going from guard and trying to transition to center? So centers, well, it's it's cerebral, cerebral challenges, right? You know, the communication or identifying everything. Um, from a from a you know, from a, a technical standpoint or from like a, a one-on-one standpoint, you get the most help at center, obviously. So I think if, if somebody's deficient in any way, like center's a good place to put them as long as they can keep up with the calls and, and they're very, very cerebral and intelligent and and, and, a, and a good leader. Listen, if you're if you hit from 360 to 330, I, I don't know the guy, you're probably overweight, right? Like, because you just, you just dropped 30 pounds. Like, it tells me something. Um, it just matters what – it's not always the weight. It's not the number. It's how you move. Like if you can't, like I remember, I had uh, my third year. Everyone, everyone in the league was like prototype te- or guard six five six six three fifteen. I played at two ninety five, and my my coach was like, no, 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 we want you at we want you at three hundred fifteen pounds, dude. So I drank milk, two gallons of milk every day for like the next four months, and I ended up getting benched that year. Like I was terrible. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I was just the wrong weight. And so it's 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 not the number. It's just if you can't move, then, yeah, you got too much weight on you. Okay. And that's all the um, fan questions we have for today. I mean, that's about to give you guys an hour uh, of content today. As a reminder, be sure to visit uh, Mike's website at process2perform.com. Uh, I'm going to share the website here on the screen for everybody to visit. He's got a podcast with Amon Green, former Panthers running back. That's very informative for you guys to check out. A lot of motivational pieces, uh, offensive line education for a lot of fans that want to continue to learn more about the position and what to look for when evaluating offensive linemen and you know tips on how to watch them and better uh, educate yourself about the intricacies of the position. And uh, Mike, do you have anything else you want to talk to the fans about projects you're working on or how they can find you on social media? Uh, yeah. Well? Yeah. So, so process to perform is this podcast is specifically is just for player development. And, and like, I deal with like on my, on my, on the other side of this with like the, our total athlete development platform. And I work with rugby, soccer, basketball, uh, baseball, tennis, uh, and football. Like it's not, if it's a confrontational sport, if there's a one V one involved, like, we can make you the best version of you. We can help you get to that point. So uh, it's not always just limited to football. And that, and that, like those discussions specifically, whether it's me or whether I'm interviewed, like this week we had an interview with uh, Seattle Seahawks legend, Ring of Honor uh, quarterback, Jim Zorn. Last week before that, we had an interview with Bethany Maddox-Sands, who's an Olympic, te- Olympic tennis champion. And so it's really just, again, for parents, players, and coaches trying to get the, get, get the best version of themselves out there and, you can hit. You can check out that total athlete development uh, platform on processdoperform.com, and then the uh, the the on the on my block podcast with Amon Green is really a Packers centric podcast. We talk NFL, we, not an old head talk, man. Get off my lawn stuff. We have a lot of fun with it. You can find that anywhere you find your podcast. And then I think the last thing would just be hit me up at Mike Wall Mike Wall sixty eight on Twitter and process to perform on Instagram. Okay, great. Well, thank you for. Um joining us on our show today. Unfortunately, Kevin couldn't uh, be here today. I know he was really looking forward to speaking with you. Hopefully we can get him on another time. I think his power went out with the snowstorms up in the Carolinas. Uh, Smooth, do you have anything you want to say before we call it a day? No, man, I had a, it was a pleasure for me getting to learn from a guy that's done it before. 
I had a great conversation with you. I appreciate the knowledge that you provided. I'm going to use that to help me better get better at my craft. Um, I wish Kevin got to be here because he's our other trench guy. He loves the trenches just like I do, man. But I appreciate everything you do. I followed all your social media pages, even on Clubhouse. I follow you. I don't know how often you get on Clubhouse, but no, never, man. <laughs> never. No. So, so, wanted, so but, see, you know, I have some of these things I did. I'm old, right? Like I wasn't on social media. I was never on social media. So someone's like, man, you got to get on this stuff. So I, you know, I get on it, whatever. And I got to get on this clubhouse. I'll invite you. And I go, okay, what are we doing here? And I, I remember I sat in on like one thing. And I was like, all right, this isn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. I got an old head. I followed you on everything, man. I'm really a fan of your website as well. It's a lot of good knowledge on there. Well, hey, I appreciate it, guys. And, 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 and thank you for that. You know, the, the best thing sometimes is, is just – Getting getting in the form to talk about this stuff and, and talk about what, what interests us and getting different perspectives, right? Like I, I learned from every conversation. I learned my you know today from my conversation with you guys, and there's just always uh, there's there's a I think there's a best practice way to do a lot of things when we talk about movement. And so uh, when we talk about offensive line, defensive line play, and, the, and how structured everything is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that you know will say, well, it depends on this, depends on that, depends on. Like there's a there's kind of a best practice way to do stuff, and I think when when we kind of acknowledge that there's a certain way that's a, is is a better than or best way to move, and we kind of try to apply those principles to the sport, we get the best out of our athletes. And it, I think that process is just taking a really long time, especially in football. And I don't really know the answers why, but the answers are there. Your strength coach has already given you guys like the not you guys, but these these organizations, these coaches. They're or, they're literally showing you what the keys to success are every single day. And we just don't seem to acknowledge it. So, you know, if I, if I can ever just help guys get towards that idea, that concept, man, it's, it's a thrill for me, but it was, it was, I love talking to you guys, man. I appreciate the time. Well, thank you for joining us again. Um, all the people that joined in, thank you for tuning in uh, this afternoon with us. You can catch a replay of the podcast on iTunes, uh, Spotify, all the podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook. Uh, keep pounding and we'll tune in next time.